This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Trainers World, From Steam to Stars by Scott Blackmer, a steampunk sci-fi novel about a gifted young man unlocking the mysteries that brought his ancestors to colony from long-lost Earth. Learn more over at trainersworld.com. So that's T-R-A-Y-N-O-R-S-World.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 473 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Tom Gerenser, making his 18th appearance on the show. He's the author of the business book, Think Like Google, and his popular science book, How It's Made, written for the Discovery Channel, will be out in December. And we'll be speaking with him today about his short story collection, Intergalactic Refrigerator Repairmen Seldom Carry Cash, which collects 19 humorous science fiction stories that have appeared in magazines such as Galaxy's Edge, Science Fiction Age, and Realms of Fantasy. And today's show is brought to you by Trainers World, From Steam to Stars by Scott Blackmer. And here's a description of the book. It says... Trainer's World is a young adult science fiction series set on the planet Colony, settled some 500 years earlier by an arc ship fleeing mankind's obliteration. Unfortunately, the colonists emerge from stasis with their old quarrels unresolved, losing or destroying most of the advanced knowledge they brought with them. Now they are on the verge of war again, even though their technology is only recovered to the level of steam and electricity. All the while, the arc ship, known only as the Sphere, continues to orbit silently above them. The boy named John Trainer is an unlikely agent of change. A foreign student from a backwoods farm, he dreams of the stars while mopping floors at the university in Nouveau Pari. Then one night, he inadvertently wakes the artificial intelligence aboard the sphere and learns that the world as he knows it may be facing extinction. John holds the key to a treasure trove of knowledge, but can he keep one step ahead of the powerful forces that would use the ancient technology to dominate colony? Is the new world doomed to repeat the mistakes of the old? John just wanted to leave home and get an education. Now he finds himself in the middle of a struggle for the future of his world. Trainer's World by Scott Blackmer is available now as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com, where it's received only five star reviews. A sequel is coming out soon, and you can discover more content, puzzles, and ways to engage with the story over at Trainer'sWorld.com. So again, that's T R A Y N O R S World.com. And if you want to get the word out about your own book, movie, event, or product on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, you can learn more about that over at geeksguideshow.com slash ads. And now here's our interview with Tom Gerenser. All right, so we're here with Tom Gerenser. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so I first met you at the Clarion Writers Workshop in 1999. So I'm just curious, how did you first hear about Clarion and what made you apply? Wow, I don't... That was so long ago. I don't actually remember. Do you remember what made you first hear about Clarion? Uh, I mean, I just heard about it just in books and authors' introductions and stuff. And it was actually my mom pointed out to me that it was going on. And they had a, it was, I think it was maybe in Locust Magazine or something. They had an ad. And I saw that James Morrow was one of the instructors that year. And he was one of my favorite writers at the time. I mean, still is. But, you know, I just discovered him around, you know, recently back then. And so I wanted to work with him. So that's how I ended up going. Interesting. I don't actually remember how I heard of it, heard about it. I, I was, um, I was writing a lot and submitting a lot, submitting a lot of short stories to, uh, like FNSF and Science Fiction Age and really trying to get published. 
And so I suspect that it was probably like I saw an ad because I subscribed to a lot of those magazines back then. And I suspect that I probably saw an ad in one of them and uh, for the for the workshop and say, hey, this looks like something I could try out and then applied to it. But I honestly, I, I just don't remember. Yeah, I mean, because you hadn't been to any conventions or other science fiction workshops or anything like that. No, absolutely not. Yeah. So uh, then what was it like uh, showing up at for a six-week writing workshop? It was pretty crazy. Um, you know, I had heard all these things about it, that it was going to be like uh, just a bunch of people sleeping with each other and all this craziness. And I was like, I don't really want that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that I didn't want to sleep with people. I just I just wanted to go to, to learn how to write and uh, learn how to write and publish science fiction. And I knew that I was having a problem with, you know, just lots and lots of uh, form rejections and I knew something was missing and I thought that that would help build something. But it was kind of overwhelming. It was like so much writing and, and I was, uh, I really like to uh, write and write and write, but not show anything to anybody unless it was really, really polished. And so that was a new experience to me, for me to, to have to, you know, write something every night and then share, not every night, but frequently write something uh, and then share it with people very frequently and, and have people looking at things that were very rough and criticizing them. And um, that was very daunting. And especially because there were these, you know, big name editors and writers who were there reading our stuff was very frightening. And, uh, you know, some of them were very, uh, uh, received my stories very well. And some of them absolutely did not. And so that was, you know, it was an up and down kind of thing that was very tough. And there were likewise students in the class who, who thought my stories were very good. And there were other students who thought my stories were absolute garbage and I shouldn't be even trying. <laughs> and so, so that was, it was very, uh, I guess it was kind of an introduction to, Hey, you have an ego. That's the first thing you have to get rid of. And, and that, that to me is actually the biggest lesson that I, it took me years to learn that from the Clarion workshop. It wasn't like I learned it right away, but it was as I became a professional writer for nonfiction, that has been the biggest lesson that has, you know, it's kind of started with Clarion and it kind of went forward from there that you just absolutely can't have an ego. If you're going to write, it has to go away. I mean, I forget if it was uh, week three or week four, I feel like, but Mike Resnick came as one of the instructors. And I feel like he just loved you. Like he thought you were a genius. And then the rest of us, he was, he didn't think we're, we're geniuses. But was that your, is that how you remember it? That he just really was really yeah. encouraging to you? Yeah, absolutely. And he used the word genius. In fact, he used to call me genius just all the time. Anytime <laughs> he talked to me, he would just say, he, instead of calling me Tom, he would just call me genius. And, uh, which was very flattering, but it was also very daunting because it was very much like if you've seen the movie Barton Fink, it was like that, that producer who's like, the writer is king. We love you, Fink. And then, uh, and then the, the, uh, the guy who, I can't remember his name, but the actor who played Monk in the, in the popular TV series, uh, he plays a sort of a, a, a director who works for this producer. And he's, he tells Barton Fink, he's like, you don't understand. He's taken a interest. This is bad, Fink. This is very, very bad. <laughs> so it was like, it was really bad for my ego because he, he called me or which, you know, turns out to be a good thing, but he called me genius all the time. And he said I was a genius. And then he, he actually sat me down one time and he told me, look, he said, there are 
four other people I've called geniuses in my life. And he said, do you want to know what happened to the rest of them? And I said, not really. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you. He said, one of them committed suicide. Uh, two of them are something like they work in like a quickie mart or something as like a they sweep floors or something. And the other one, uh, I can't, something bad happened to the other one as well. So none of them ever made it as writers. They, they all, which, you know, I, I haven't made it either. So if Mike were still alive, he would just be saying, yeah, this is what happens to people I think are geniuses. <laughs> but he, he kind of stressed to me that, it, you know, in the same time he called me a genius, he stressed to me that it had nothing, success at writing had nothing to do with being a genius. It had everything to do with, you know, just dropping your ego and working at your craft. And, um, you know, not, not being lulled, which kind of reminds me as well of, um, Roger, was it Roger Zelazny or no, you know who it was, was the, uh, uh, one of the guys who, what was his name? Richard Feynman, one of the guys who worked on the atom bomb. Um, and he had so many other amazing successes, but if you read his book, a beautiful book called surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, it's a very short book. It's about his exploits, you know, learning how to pick locks, learning how to make an atom bomb, learning how to paint, learning how to meditate, like all these different things. And uh, he's got like a great chapter in the in the book where he talks about, you know, painting and he, he learns how to paint and he paints all these paintings. And then he has a sh somebody in like New York or California is like, you want to have a show in my art studio? And he's like, OK, sure. So he has this show and then the show is this massive success and like every one of his paintings sells and it's written up in like this big, like the New Yorker or, the, you know, some big magazine, Atlantic or something. And uh, they're like, oh, this is brilliant works of art, blah, blah, blah. And this famous uh, painting critic or art critic, painting critic shows what I know, painting critic, um, this famous art critic says, uh, says, you know, you're never going to paint again. And he says, why not? And he says, because you just had too much success too fast and that's going to be it. You just won't enjoy it. And he said, I don't know if it was like, uh, you know. Yeah, um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Thank you. That's the phrase I was looking for. Self-fulfilling prophecy or that he was just right. But he's like, I never wanted to paint again. I never did. And uh, and that's kind of what I worry worried about most with Mike Resnick's, you know, just lavishing me with praise is that it uh, – it set up this unrealistic expectation. I, I'm not blaming him. If he was here right now, he would be like, oh, it's my fault. <laughs> he, would, he would totally make fun of me. But uh, it set up this unrealistic expectation in my head, number one. And it set up a giant fear in me that I'm never going to be able to live up to this, what he thinks I am, because I'm not. And I told him, I was like, I'm not a genius. I said, I, I write so much. And so like 99% of what I write is absolute garbage. And then I just like, I go back and read through it and I, f I pull out these gems that I'm like, oh, this is good. And he's like, yeah, but he's like most 99% of writers out there don't know the difference between garbage and good writing. And you do. He's like, I, I understand you write a lot of garbage, but then you write this good stuff and you're able to go back and identify it as good stuff. And he's like, and that I believe is what does make you a genius. So, uh, but then it did hurt too. There were times he came back to me and said, this is how you know, I'd send him a story and he'd say, this is absolute garbage. And he'd like go up one side of me and down the other, like, right. I remember one thing he said, I wrote this piece that I was so proud of. And I, and I was like, it's 9,000 words long. And he's like, I'll never publish it. It's too long. And I was like, will you just read it though? And he's like, okay, sure. And then he comes back to me. And the first, the first thing he said was, 
for God's sakes, write a declarative sentence. And because I had all these like flowery sentences that were like all convoluted and just like it just completely pissed him off. Um, But yeah, so in instances like that where he didn't like what I wrote, it really hurt. But that was rare. And most of the time, you're right. He just he just was like, oh, you're an absolute genius. Well, but I mean, you you say that, you know, you haven't made it as a writer. But I mean, you have published, I don't know, a dozen or so, dozen or two humorous science fiction stories, which given the you know, the market for humorous science fiction, I think that's a pretty good accomplishment um, because, you know, there's not a lot of markets out there for for science fiction humor. Well, thank you, but I'm 52 years old. I'm not, you know, if I had had that kind of success by the time I was, you know, 25, I'd be like, oh, I'm a success. But at 52 years old where I have this, uh, this, uh, I was actually shocked when I, I sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to publish a collection of my stories if I have enough. And I was actually shocked that I had like, enough stories that I really like that I was able to put it into a collection. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, if that had happened when I was younger, I'd say yeah, I was a success. It happens when I'm older. I'm like, Oh, cool. You know, <laughs> if you get old enough and you keep at it, even sporadically, you get enough stories that you like that you can, you can put them into a book. So yeah, I, I guess, I guess I still wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a successful writer. I, I, I would, for, to be a successful writer, I think I would look at myself and, and say, well, Hey, you know, I've, I make a living off this and I don't have to do any other kind of work. And uh, that to me would be a successful writer. Um, and no, you know, apologies to people out there who consider themselves successful writers who, who haven't done that. Uh, that it's just not something that I would, I would definitely look at another writer who, who had like, you know, if they had a few books published or something, I would say that's a successful writer, whether they made a living off it or not. But for myself, I guess that's just the, how I look at my, the, the window I look at myself through, um, just m- my own personal writing mirror just doesn't, doesn't include that. Yeah. I think that's a pretty high bar making a living off your writing. I mean, you think of how many great writers didn't make a living off their writing. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't, uh, fixate too much on that. Cool. Okay. Thank you, Dave. But let's, let's talk about this. So, so you go to Clarion and, you know, Mike Resnick tells you you're a genius and, and actually, you know, um, uh, one of the um, guests, one of the other guests was Scott Edelman, who at the time was editing a magazine called Science Fiction Age. And so he said, after he came, he's like, I'm going to buy one story from this from this class. Uh, and, and we didn't know who it was, but it turned out it was yours. So, uh, you know, you had multiple people giving you this sort of validation. Yeah, I, I was really excited about that one because I had been submitting to Science Fiction Age regularly and I had gotten nothing but form rejections. And actually, when I had my one-on-one meeting with Scott, as we all did in the class, we all had we each had a one-on-one meeting with, with each of the instructors. And when I had mine with him, he just sat down on the couch and I was on a chair across, from, across the coffee table from him and he held up my story, Primordial Chili, and he said, um... I really like this story. You know, he said, uh, you know, I talked to you about it in class and uh, he said, I think it's great. He said, I, I basically think it's, it's just a perfect story. And he told me all these things he liked about it. And I looked back at him and I was kind of like blinking and I was kind of <laughs> like, oh, okay. And I said, so uh, why didn't you buy it then? I'm just curious. You know, I, I understand you really like it, but there must be some reason you didn't buy it. And he like he then it was his turn to blink back at me, and he said, uh, "You sent this to me," and I said, "Yeah," 
And he said, oh, and I, he said, what did I say? And I said, you didn't say anything. I got a form <laughs> rejection. It was like a photo, like a photocard, like a mimeographed form <laughs> rejection. And it ha- he's like, oh, and he's just like staring at me. And he goes, well, I'm sorry I didn't say anything about it. He goes, maybe I was just having a bad week or something. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he shrugged and changed the subject. And I was like, that's really weird. And then when he announced that he was going to buy one story out of the whole class, I instantly thought, it was me. I, I thought it's me because he said it was a perfect story and he decided to, he must have had a bad week. And I was like, it's me. And then everybody was debating like, whose is it? Whose is it? Who do, you, do you think it's yours? Do you think it's yours? And I just avoided the whole debate because I was like, I really think it's me, but I don't want to sound like an idiot and come out and be like, it's me and then be wrong. So there's no point in me saying anything. So I'm just not going to engage in it. And I just avoided the whole thing. And then um, a week after Clarion ended, he, I got this phone call. I answered the phone. I was at my parents' camp. And uh, he's like, hey, Tom, it's Scott Edelman. And I was like, yeah, right. And he goes, he goes, no, it really, it is, it is. And he goes, and I want to buy, I want to buy your story. And I was like, who, who is this really? And uh, he was like, no, no, I, because I hadn't sold anything professionally yet, you know, to that day. I hadn't sold anything professionally. And that would have been my first sale. And, uh, after, you know, a certain amount of disbelief, he was just like, no, you know, no, this is really, I I finally accepted like, wow, he really wants to buy my story. He's like, look, I'm going to mail you a contract. We'll go from there. And I was so excited and it, you know, it wasn't much money, but it was, I think it was a few hundred dollars, but to me at the time it was a decent chunk of money and it was, it was very exciting, um, you know, to sell my first story and to have that validation. And I, and I think that I, I did then email you and Tobias Bakel and Mike Canfield who we were all kind of on a on a uh, an email thread at the time and said, hey, it was me. Like, I'm so excited. And you guys were like, oh, we're so happy for you. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, I think that says a lot about editors where like so many times people, you know, I'll talk to new writers and they'll say like, oh, I got eight rejections. Obviously, I'm no good. I give up. And it's kind of like, no, but editors are just people. And like you said, like Scott's like, oh, I read it, this story one day and I didn't like it. And then I read another day and I thought it was perfect. I mean, you know, you just, you, you know, you have to keep at it for like, you know, once you have 800 rejections, I feel like maybe start wondering if you're no good, but, you know, don't take any, anything too seriously. Yeah. And that's the most frustrating thing for me about um, writing short fiction is that you've got all these editors and you might have one who you really hit it off with. And in that case, it was Mike Resnick. I mean, Scott Edelman bought another story for me, but then quickly after that, the magazine folded, which was not my fault, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, but Mike Resnick would be like, send me anything you write, I'll buy it. <laughs> and And that was great, you know, to have that guy in there. But there were so many other editors who were just like, every time I send them anything, they're like, nah, I don't really like this kind of thing. So I just wasn't a lot of people's cup of tea. And that's very frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, you know, since, um, you know, science fiction age doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I'll just explain for people, you know, that there was science fiction age, and then it had a sister publication, Realms of Fantasy. And most of the, um, you know, most of the fantasy and science fiction magazines have pretty modest production values. Um, but these two magazines, they looked really, really professional. They were all like glossy paper and full color and ads and great art. And, um, and so I remember so much when your story, A Taste of Damsel, which is in, in this collection came out in Realms of Fantasy, had just this beautiful, beautiful illustration. And, um, 
I mean, and actually, like part of the reason I, I I sort of stopped writing short fiction and focused on podcasting after Realms of Fantasy uh, closed was because I was kind of like, man, you know, I spent you know fifteen years or something uh, getting, I think, pretty good at writing short stories, and then my main market closed. And uh, at least with the podcast, like this party isn't over till I say it is. You know, like no one can take this away from me. So. Uh, yeah, it was just, I don't know, it's an exciting time and having your, your stories coming out and these, you know, these magazines that were like on, uh, you know, they would, they'd be like in the supermarket and, and stuff like that. I mean, it was, uh, it was really cool. That was very exciting for me too, to go into a bookstore or a supermarket and see a magazine with, with one of my, you know, with my name on the front. That was, uh, it was very thrilling. Yeah. So um, I, I liked that uh, I got a mention in one of your author's notes in this book. Um, yeah. You say, uh, my friend David Barkerley, who I met at Clarion, is now the host of the popular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, said it wasn't really a story. He explains that it needed complications. So uh, so say more about how, uh, what kind of impact I had on you. You had a lot of impact on me, actually, because number one, um, you seemed to really like my writing uh, from from day one. You seemed to really be invested in my career, which I really... I re- it really kind of endeared me to you. Um, but at the same time, you felt, you know, you, you were very clear that you felt that I, I didn't have a good grasp of plot and that there was a lot of, uh, a lot of that side of the, of writing that I really should, should apply myself to try to learn. And that the, the combination of the two, I feel like, like when Tim Powers at Clarion said, you know, he, I think at one point he, he slapped one of my stories on the table in front of him and said, this is a jape. And he was so angry when he said it that I was like, he just hates that story. <laughs> and there was nothing of mine that he really liked, you know, except I wrote this story to try to please him. And he was like, oh, this is okay. You know, it's kind of garbage, but it's, it's better. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I hate it too. So let's just move on. But, um, but with you, you know, so when he told me my stuff was bad, I was like, I get the feeling that this guy just doesn't flat out doesn't like me. Because he doesn't think that I that I care about writing, and he thinks I'm just like joking around, like, I, which I, you know was humor, but it wasn't it wasn't just goofy. I didn't think it was just goofy humor. Um, but but you, ha- by contrast, you had a kind of take on my stuff that was like uh, you know you really liked my stuff, you really liked me, but you really felt I had a lot of room for improvement, and that combination made me feel like oh I, I should pay attention to this guy. So when you told me about complications, um, and you told me particularly that story, you're like, I really like this story, but it just doesn't have any complications in it. And you and I had like long, it wasn't like a, you know, in the, in the author note, I, I kind of glossed over it, but you and I had, it wasn't just like a one-off phrase from you. You and I had long conversations about, uh, complications. And so I, I went back and tried to write that story, Mm -hmm. rewrite it with complications and I felt like I really, you know, I put a lot of thought into it, a lot of effort into like, how would these complications work? What problems would these people run into in the course of trying to reach this goal that would frustrate them and that would, you know, make sense in the course of the story? And then I, I distinctly remember you, I don't remember where we were exactly, but I vividly remember you finishing reading that story and looking up at me and smiling and just <laughs> nodding. Like, that's all you did was nod. And I was like, awesome. I nailed it. <laughs> I was really excited about that. Well, yeah, because uh, I don't know if, if people listening haven't taken any writing classes or whatever. I just have a little list I made here. This is sort of the standard stuff they would tell you about what makes a good story um, in terms of plot, basically. So uh, the protagonist actively pursues something they really want. 
The tension in the story increases over time as things unexpectedly go wrong. That's complications. The protagonist makes a big choice at the climax of the story. The conclusion of the story is surprising yet inevitable. And oftentimes the last scene is somehow an echo of the first scene, except now we can see how the protagonist has changed over the course of the story. And so, you know, that's kind of the stuff at a writing workshop. They would say, oh, this is, you know, some guidelines for how to have a good plot. And your stories typically don't function like that. And that really concerned me back then. I think actually reading them now, I appreciate them more now because I've had 20 more years of just reading fiction. And I go back and read these stories now. I'm like, wow, these are just really like inventive and imaginative and different. You know, I feel like I've seen more now what what Mike Resnick, uh, you know, uh, saw in them. Um, But I mean, you know, and I was thinking like, you know, about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like, it doesn't follow any of those things. I mean, Arthur Dent is a really passive character and just kind of gets pulled on this adventure and never really does anything, you know, stuff just happens to him. And so I don't know, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of torn on, on how I feel about all that for, for science fiction humor right now. Well, you and I have had a conversation about this, and I think you agree with me that although Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy doesn't have an overt plot, it has a very strong metaphysical plot where, uh, you know, uh, Arthur Dent does very much have something that he very much wants. He has a, he has probably one of the strongest goals out of any character I can think of in fiction that, that he wants to understand just what the hell is going on. Uh, and he does it, and it's so maddening to him that he almost gets close. And it's full of complications where he gets so close so many times to learning what's going on, and then it turns out to be like a big joke on him over and over and over again. And the tension increases throughout until the climax of, you know, I understand that it's a five-book trilogy, which is <laughs> kind of Douglas Adams is another one of his jokes, but I, I prefer the first three. And there is a definite story arc over those first three, a metaphysical story arc where it, Arthur finally learns that what, what he has to do, the inevitable conclusion that he makes this big decision at the end is to decide that he doesn't have to know what's going on. Forget it. Throw it all in the air. Like rip it, rip it all up and throw the pieces in the air and let them whip away on the wind because it's not about figuring out what's going on. You're never going to do it. The more you try to do it, the more you're going to frustrate yourself. And he finally gets to a point where he realizes, I'm just going to hang the sense of it all and enjoy myself. And when he does that, he literally learns how to fly. It's fantastic. It's so freeing. It's it's the reason that that trilogy remains. I haven't read it in decades, but it's the reason why it remains, you know, one of my favorite uh, works of fiction in the world and why, you know, I, I went and found the radio drama and listened to that religiously over and over and over again. I have a, an autographed copy of it sitting above my desk right now as we're talking. Um, you know, I went and sought out, I went on a kind of a pilgrimage to, to the UK and met Douglas Adams and interviewed him and talked to him about his, his work. And it, it, that's the reason because I, I love, it does have those things you're talking about, just not in the, you know, the action, you know, the, you can see it and touch it all sort of way. I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah. And when I'm talking, yeah, when I, I mean, for me, Hitchhiker's Guide is mostly the radio drama. I have read the books, but only, I think only once. Um, and, but I've, you know, whereas I've listened to the radio drama, you know, 20, 25 times or something. So, um, wow. Um, so that's always what I'm thinking of, but I mean, and that's, de- but that's definitely what I was thinking of reading your, your collection here is that, you know, sort of the phrase that popped into my mind was, you know, existential science fiction comedy. 
you know, because there's there's a lot of humor where it's out there where it's just trying to make you laugh and that's fine. But I feel like Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, probably Robert Sheckley, um, you know, and, and you like it's it's all about these questions of like, you know, how can we be happy? You know, what's the universe there for? You know, could could an ordinary person save the world? I mean, those are just the concerns that you see in, in your stories over and over again. And that's again, I don't think I appreciated that so much twenty years ago. But but reading these stories now, I certainly I see that. I guess are you are you conscious of that when you're when you're writing your stories about about these sort of existential things? Yeah, and first of all, for you to put me in uh, in the company of uh, you know Douglas Adams and Robert Sheckley, I'm definitely a pretender in there, you know, <laughs> at their, at, at their feet. But I, but I do very much, um, I, I have suffered in the past from trying to write funny stories just for the sake of being funny, which never works for me. And what, what works better is when I really dig into a, a super powerful emotion. And, um, and it's so powerful that for some reason that turns into humor in my head, because I think I can't handle when an emotion gets really, I, I think I have a very strong emotion dial in me where things can go past what most people might be able to feel. And I, I don't say that as a, I think the the way, the sense that I mean that in is that uh, maybe I got hit a little too hard with the, uh, with the emotion stick um, when I was younger. And I, I tend to be overly emotional and but at the same time i can't handle the the extreme that it can go to like there there should have been like a you know in go karts there's like a little thing at the bottom the bottom of the gas pedal that they put in there like a little screw that they put on there to prevent kids from going too fast and like crashing into the hay bales or whatever and getting hurt and when when i was little my friend Sean figured out how to defeat that and he could go like <laughs> 40 miles per hour on a go kart and they'd be like hey hey um <laughs> But uh, but I feel like some that got left off of my emotional go kart to where it can go way too fast, and when it goes that fast, it's scary, and so that turns into like my brain automatically has this defense mechanism of of just throwing these funny things at me that kind of slow me down, and so I think that's the my favorite type of of my own writing is when I don't try to write something funny. I try to write something exceptionally emotional. So I try to give a character just something that's going to be too much for them. And then that turns into humor. And that to me, yeah, that's the reason that a lot of it is just existential humor because it's the most fun to me. And it's the most fun thing. It's, it's also a fun defense mechanism for my life because, you know, you, life is horrifying and it's all these like horrifying things one after another. And I feel like if I can explore that horror um, but not in the way that Stephen King does. I think he says a similar thing in one of his, uh, you know, nonfiction works where he says, look, it's, I feel like if I can go through all these horrifying things on paper, then it makes me feel better about life. And I feel that way too. But I, I guess I just, the, when I deal with horrifying things on paper, it just comes out, uh, funny which which is fine i like that and it makes me it it t lets me take a step back from my real life and be like come on relax this this is like uh bugs bunny and somebody before him said uh don't take it too seriously you're never going to get out of it alive say more about the so you mentioned that you you write all these different stories and you kind of pick out the gems and i don't know if people have really gotten a full full context of how many stories we're talking about cuz you say that you have 
you say in the book, hundreds, maybe thousands of stories all in sort of plastic bins in your basement, right? Like, yeah. I remember you showed me that or, or at least told me about it. Like, it's just like boxes and boxes and boxes of sort of 10 page stories. Yeah, because I heard a long time ago a phrase that you have to write a million words of crap before you write one good one. So I always joked that, you know, I, I wrote a million words of crap before I wrote my first good one. It was cucumber and I was really proud of it. Hmm. Um, but the, the crates in my basement, I really did write probably a million words. I mean, I, I have just longhand. I've always written longhand until, uh, until, you know, my forties. Um, but I, I have. You know, if you go to Walmart and you go into the, uh, and you avoid the weird people and you go into the, the section with the big Tupperware bins that you can put like clothes and stuff in, I would just like write and write and write and fill a notebook with short stories um, or fragments of short stories. And then I would put them into the bin and then I would fill another notebook and put that into the bin and fill another notebook. And then eventually now I have like, I don't know, it's like, it's like five or six bins in the basement. And, and there are several bins that I lost at some point. I don't remember how. I think they were in my parents' attic. And then uh, my parents died many you know decades later. And my brother, I was living in a different state. And my siblings cleaned out the house and just threw a lot of things out. And I think I lost probably several boxes or bins of, of short stories that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 just... I don't know, just an incredible amount of words. And I didn't even keep going. You know, there were there were large chunks of years where I stopped and just didn't write for a long time, didn't write fiction for a long time, um, and then started up again. So uh, so it could have been even more, but, but it is certainly a, a, an avalanche of words. And so then talk about like which out of all those stories, which ones were the ones that got published and which ones were the ones that ended up in your collection? So all the ones that got published ended up in my collection. Um, and then, uh, there were a few more that I f always felt should have gotten published, but didn't end up in any, didn't end up published. And I put those in the collection too, because I thought, well, this one's easily as good as the other ones in, in the, that, in the collection so far. So I'm going to include it. Um, but what, what specific, did you want me to mention the titles or? Well, no, I mean, just like, do, do the do you think that those stories like what separates those stories if anything from the hundreds and hundreds that are just still in the bin yeah i guess um i guess i just like them i guess i just when i went back and read them and, and you know there are some that i just happened to go back years later or even decades later and be looking through a uh, a paper notebook or looking through a hard drive and find it and go what the hell is this this is so cool and start reading it and be like, wow, this is something I wrote. I love this. And then get to the end and go, wow, I can't believe I never like sent that out to a, to try to get it published, but I'm going to, I'm going to pull it out now. And, you know, I like it now. Um, it's just, it's just something that I liked. There were a lot of stories that I started writing and just didn't finish. Then I kind of made myself after a while, I started making myself finish everything. Like if I was going to start a story, I wasn't going to give up on it until it was done. Um, but the ones that I really like have something a little more. I think they just have more. Um, the ones I don't like tend to be sort of all the same where there's just like a guy hanging out and something bizarre starts to happen to him and he starts to react to it. And it keeps happening and he, he keeps reacting to it and it kind of goes on and on and on. The ones I really like are something where something, you know, there's some somebody and something bizarre starts to happen to them. 
And they start to react to it in a kind of a fresh way where they're like, uh, like a real person. And then the bizarre thing that starts happening doesn't just keep happening. It kind of escalates. And then they, the, the main character comes up with some new solution and then it escalates from there and with new ideas. Um, for example, there's one called Upright Unlocked, uh, which is about a, an immortal robot that was put here before on earth before the planet was, was, you know, during the creation of the planet in the center of the magma in the center of the planet. It's just, it's this impervious robot, uh, immortal robot. And, and it was put there so that once the human race was adequately developed, it would show up and present us with a bill. And, uh, I loved that idea, but it was because the earth was made by robots. Because the Earth was made by another civilization, not by robots, but by another civilization that left the robot there, um, that one day would, you know, that, that took the long view of things that would say, these are all, all the, we have lots of planets around the universe that we create, and it's, it's all an investment for us. Each one is an investment. And once each one has a civilization on it, we're going to charge them money, uh, you know, a vast amount of their gross domestic par- product. And that's how we keep our, our economy going. And which is kind of a Douglas Adamsy idea, very much a Douglas, like a Magrathia idea. But I had that idea and I had written it a few times where the robot though gets damaged and he's crazy. And, um, and I had written it a few times, started it a few times. But then one day I was on a, on a, you know, in an airport waiting for my flight and I got bumped and I was like, Oh, this is so cool. I, you know, I was younger and I was like, this is so cool. I got, they gave me an extra free plane ticket. They gave me uh, vouchers for food. They gave me a free hotel night, which back then I didn't stay in a lot of hotels. So I was like, oh, this is great. And then the next day, they they were announcing they were bumping people again. And I was like, I want to get bumped again. And I, I can't remember if I actually got bumped again or I just tried to. But I was talking to this guy next to me and I was like, I might never leave. I might just <laughs> do this for the rest of my life. This is great. And he he just stared back at me. He was like, dare to dream. <laughs> uh, which, you know, he thought I was an idiot, which I kind of was, but I was just young and excited. And, and then I thought about, you know, I was, I was looking at that story of that robot and I was like, what if I just like merged those two ideas? And so I tried it and it came out really good. And to me, you know, when you ask like, what are the stories that work the best? It's always something where there's like an idea and then I kind of play that idea along for a little bit, but then I introduce another idea that doesn't seem to fit with it, but see how they fit together. And um, and see if that new idea can escalate the first idea, and it did it, and it and it worked really. In my mind, it worked really well. So, so that that's something I kind of strive for now when I'm writing. Yeah, well, I mean, like there's a story in here called "Electric Fettuccine Sample Case," which I think is one of the unpublished ones, which yeah. I thought was really good, and it has like a lot of the things we were talking about in terms of the character making a big decision at the climax of the story, and and some of these things that do make it feel more, um, you know, more developed or have more impact at the end. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm glad you like that one. Uh, that that is one of my favorites as well, and it's actually one of the ones that I wrote last out of the whole collection. And I think it shows that I was a little bit more um, developed as a writer when I wrote it. But it, I do love it because I I had sat down and started writing it years ago, and was just I think I was under the influence of Good Omens by uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And just their kind of the the kind of lyricism of how they how they tell a story is so hypnotic, 
And I, I just, it wasn't like I was trying to do that, but it was just because I had been reading that my words were coming out that way. And I, and I was just kind of following the story along as I was writing it. And I was like, this is really fun. But I, I kept writing it and writing. I kept every day putting a little bit more words to it. And I think I got to a point where I just thought, I don't know what this is. I don't know if this is like a novel. And if it's a novel, I don't know where it goes. I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to give up on it. And I sort of gave up on it. And I went back years later and I found it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I gave up on this. I absolutely love this. And I thought about it. And I had just, like I, you know, like I said with the, uh, with the robot story, I had just had this experience where I was eating in a Thai restaurant and I had a few weeks before I had bought this on a whim, this vegetable in a supermarket called uh, a bitter melon. And I, and I had tried to cook it. I cooked it and ate some and I was like, this is awful. This is so bad. And I thought maybe if I had onion, it's so bitter. Like it's so, it's the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. And I thought maybe <laughs> if I put onions, you know, onions are sweet. Maybe if I put some onions with it, they didn't even touch it. It was like laughing at the onions. Like, you can't touch me. And so I, somebody else was over the apartment at the time and, and they said, uh, they tried it and they said, a starving man wouldn't eat that. <laughs> and so I was like, well, why? Yeah, but somebody eats it. Like, why do they sell it? I don't understand. So I was in this Thai restaurant and I was talking to the owner who was this great guy who, who, uh, he was from Thailand and he was very funny. And, um, he was, I don't know, you may have eaten there actually. It was in Winslow. It was called Winslow House of Thai, I think. But, uh, you may have eaten there when you're at Colby. But, but anyway, he, um, I asked him, I said, what's the deal with this bitter melon? You know, what do you, how do you cook it? What do you cook it with to make it not so bitter? And he said, no, 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 no. If not bitter, not good. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, because we eat from the yang. And he had a big smile on his face. And I thought, that is so cool. They eat from the yang. Like it's, they want it to, he said, you Americans, you know, you always, everything has to be sweet or salty or spicy with you. You can't handle any, it's like, it's just like with your life. You can't handle any upset. Everything has to be perfect or it's not good. He said, we don't see things that way. We eat from the yang. You have to approach food and life where you also relish the bad things. And that really hit me. And then when I, when I was, so when I was going back and reading this story and thinking what's missing, I thought, that's it. That's it. This guy, um, you know, I had, I had, when I originally sat down to write the story, I was thinking, what's this, what's the worst thing that could happen? I want to explore like awful, awful things happening to this character. And I was doing that, but I didn't know how to resolve it. And when I got, when I was rereading it, I thought, that's it. He needs to, he needs to eat from the yang. And I, I made that the, uh, kind of the conclusion of the story. And I, and I don't think it's perfect the way it ends, but I do really like, I do think those two ideas fit together very well. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was really good. And it was, you know, yeah, it had like more of a, um, I don't know, like, like adult philosophical, yeah, ending, um, that I, that I really, really liked. But I think people are probably, I don't know if people get the sense of just like you, you, you have all these interesting life experiences. I mean, like, um, you know, like most people I talk to, you know, they, um, you know, most writers, you know, they kind of, you know, they live in a city or in the suburbs and they work in an office or, uh, you know, at a college or something. And, and you have all these like different, you know, you're a whitewater raft guide. You've lived in trailer parks. You, and, and then you'll also like go out of your way to talk to all these different people. Like I, I really remember, um, in Maine, there was this guy. I don't know if he's still around. He would drive around in a, um, a van that said and painted on the side in big letters, it says Stephen King shot John Lennon. 
Yeah. And and I remember you telling me like, oh yeah, and, I, and here's 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 a conversation I had with this guy, you know, like like you'll just like go up to people like that and and talk to them, and so you have all these like, yeah, just interesting things happen to you. Yeah, that's one of the the tragedies of my life. Uh, uh, although I have a lot of uh, bliss as well, I have two great young young boys and a great wife, and I live in a, the most beautiful place I've ever lived in in uh, Fayetteville, West Virginia. But um, I used to have lots of people all around me that I would always be kind of sparking off of. And I don't really have that as much anymore. I'm working to, to get more involved that way, um, in different ways. But yeah, back then, um, yeah, I mean, I was a bartender in a small town and eventually everybody comes into a bar and you, you know, you, you get to talk to people and, uh, you really get to, you really get to meet so many interesting characters. And that guy actually came in to the restaurant where I worked and was trying, he had a binder explaining, he, he was just looking for an audience and he, and I was his audience one day. It was in, in between the dinner and the lunch and dinner shifts. And he came in and started haranguing me with his, all his, you know, proof, which was absolutely insane. I mean, it was, he was insane. So it was insane proof. It was like, uh, you know, he was like the crypto babble of the media in the 1990s. And he would show me all these different pages from different magazines that he'd cut out and he would, he would show me words he had circled from different pages that would make a sentence. And I was like, yeah, but you could do that with anything. I could do that to prove like marshmallows are poisonous or like, you know, horses can fly. Like if, if that's your proof, but you know, you can't tell that to an insane person cause they just walk right over you. So, um, so anyway, I had this long conversation with this guy. It was very, it was really fun for me looking back on it. I feel badly because I'm like, this, this poor guy was suffering. And here I was like, you know, secretly like laughing up my sleeve like this is great i'm talking to this crazy guy uh which is not not the way i would look at that now i I was a lot younger and i was kind of insensitive and uh and now i would look at that guy and think this this poor guy is really suffering like this is not funny um at all but um but my boss came out after he left and he said what was that all about so i was telling him and he's the guy owned the restaurant and he said look if you want to have a conversation with somebody like that, invite him to your house. <laughs> don't, don't, don't like humor this guy in my restaurant. He was, he was really upset with me. But, um, but I do, I do still love talking to all different people. And you're right. I've, I've been all over the world kayaking and, and I really enjoy, I, I think there are so many, so many fascinating, um, people out there that, that it's a shame not to try to figure out. I mean, I, I've always talked too much, as you can tell by the length of these answers, but I really enjoy um, when you're with somebody else, it's like, it's a great opportunity to let them talk. You already know, I already know what I think. So it's a great opportunity to see somebody else's view of the world. And so many times it's so warped compared to what your view of the world is. And that makes you realize my view of the world is probably really warped too. You mentioned that you, you know, that you're married now and you have a house and, and two kids and stuff. And um, you know, like married, uh, married life and fatherhood and stuff don't really show up in these stories. Is that something that you've thought about writing about in fiction? Yeah, not most of all of these stories I wrote before I was married. Um, after I was married, you know, there was, there was a period from like 2005 through 2010 where I didn't, there was like a five year chunk where I didn't write hardly any fiction at all. Maybe just once in a while I would sit down and write like a few pages. Um, but then, when I got married, I started writing a novel and that's finished. And I'm actually rewriting that. Uh, it's, it's been through several rewrites and I really like it. 
Um, so, and I, but I didn't touch that even took me four years to write that and to rewrite it. And I haven't, um, you know, I hadn't touched that even since 2015. I don't think, or I think I went back and rewrote it in 2018, but now I'm rewriting it again. And it, and that doesn't have any kind of married life in it because I was going for a, you know, I had a specific plot in mind and it, I built it when I first got married. So I didn't have any kind of experience to draw on, but that, what I'm saying is I haven't really written a lot since I've been married, but right now I am writing. Um, you know, Amazon came out with this Vela product. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, no. What's that? So it's, you know how they used to have chapbooks uh, years ago where like, uh, I think a lot of Dickens would come out as a chapbook where he would write an installment and publish it every month and people would be like looking forward to it like a new Avengers movie or something. Um. You know what chapbooks are, right? Yeah, 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 sure. No, no, it's sort of this famous thing where um with one of one of Dickens' novels, you know, like people were waiting on the docks in New York or Boston or something, shouting to the people on the ship to find out what happened to one of the characters. Uh so yeah, no, I, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, in fact, if I'm rereading Gaijin right now by by James Clavell and he uh that's a big central like well, not central, but a kind of a side uh plot plot element that they're always waiting for that new new thing to new uh chapbook installment to reach them there in Japan. Um but um but yeah and Stephen King did it with the Green Mile if you've ever watched that movie or read that book he released that as a chapbook. He released it one chapter at a time and it was really popular. It went really well. So and, so you're doing and, that with your novel you're going to release it in installments or Yeah because Amazon Vela is this new product where they're they're releasing it in July and it's going to en- enable writers to release chapbooks one chapter at a time. And I thought it was really cool. And I was like, this is a really cool way for me to start writing something now and not have too much pressure, but see if I can build a real audience. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm writing this, uh, this chapbook and it's going to be, it's a novel and, um, and I'm writing it one chapter at a time and I have kind of a, a loosey goosey sort of plot for it, uh, that, I, that I'm putting together. And it's really fun. The way I'm writing it is really fun. And that has a lot of, um, you know, that has a married man with two boys in it. Um, and so that that's the first time in my writing where I've actually written anything about married life. Okay, so sorry. So there's two different, you have this novel that you've rewritten several times over the last, you know, seven years or so. And then you have this new thing you're doing. And those are two different, that you're going to be releasing as chapbooks. And those Correct. are two different novels. Okay. Correct. So what is, um, are they pretty similar to the stories in... Uh, in your collection in terms of subject matter or are they significantly different? The newest one is very similar. In fact, it's for, it's from ideas that I had years and years ago that I just never figured out a way to do. Um, the newest one is, is, um, uh, is called Xenoforming Earth. It's, it's, you know, as opposed to uh, terraforming another planet, it's, it's the idea that Earth is, um, is our is not only is going to be xenoformed but is already being xenoformed and we're the agents of doing so and so earth without human beings would have been this idyllic sort of paradise but these aliens many many years ago visited it and said you know it's nice but it's got too much oxygen and too many oceans and, and water and and uh it, too much of a moderated climate it needs to be much warmer and the seas should be way higher and there should be a lot <laughs> less dry land and so they just made some changes to uh, to the DNA of, of certain species in the planet to coax along evolution in, in the direction that they wanted in order to create an organism that can't help but xenoform the planet for them. And um, 
Yeah. So that's that's that one. And it sounds like it should be like a tragedy, but it's it's uh, I'm writing it as as humor because that's just kind of what I do. And then the other one, existential humor. Yeah, exactly. And then the other one is called Pandora's Jukebox. And that that's the one that's already written. And it is uh, about the idea that, you know, technology is this fascinating thing. It's so helpful in so many ways and it solves all these problems, but there's so many unintended consequences to each new piece of technology. And yet we're on this rapidly escalating exponential growth curve where technology is just getting more and more and more powerful. Like every new thing that gets released is more powerful than the last. It's almost like this, uh, uh, what's the what's the exponential growth curve? The the name of that in computers? Yeah, uh, Moore's uh, law. Moore's law. It's almost like Moore's law for everything, not just for computers. It's 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 out of control to where like you know when the first uh, when our first ancestor picked up a bone and decided to use it to smash someone on the head, like in two thousand one, the space odyssey. Um, that was the first use of a tool, and then suddenly this you know this one organism could kill another organism that was stronger than it. But since then we've gotten to the point where, okay, now we've got knives and those can, you know, one person can kill like three people with a knife. And then we had guns and then escalate from there to nuclear weapons. And what's next? You know, it's soon it's going to be where every person on the planet has a button. And if any one of us pushes that button, it's going to destroy the planet. And how long will the planet last? And so in view of that, the government in this future that I created has, has, uh, has had to, create this new department called the Department of Unnatural Consequence that has a vast, vastly powerful supercomputer that will look at any new potential invention and say, whoa, the unintended consequences of this one could destroy the planet really fast. We can't, we can't allow that. That's got to be illegal. And so no new technology is legal until it's passed through this huge bureaucratic structure, the, the Department of Unnatural Consequence. And so you know how in detective stories, there's always like, you know, the detective always has this like uh cop who like hates him because he's, he's him or her because the detective is, is kind of outside the law a little bit. And uh, the detective always gets to hobnob with these rich and famous people. Well, in this book, the cop who hates the detective is this agent from the Department of Unnatural Con- Consequence, which everybody just nicknames the Pandora Department. And so Pandora's Jukebox, the book, is about this detective who solves these black market tech crimes where there's this illegal tech that comes either in from off world or somebody from on the planet makes it up and then a crime gets committed with it. And so this detective is trying to solve these black market tech crimes. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading those. It's really fun. It, it's sort of um, a little bit fairly, fairly heavily influenced by Rex Stout who wrote all the Nero Wolf novels, which if you haven't read them, our mutual friend Mike Canfield suggest, highly suggested I read them. And I read every one of them probably 10 times each. They're so oh, much wow. fun. Yeah, they're, they're super they're, – they're very dated. It's, it's noir. It's, it's like predates Chandler. Um, in fact, a lot of what Chandler wrote was trying to, trying to kind of parody that, um, near the Nero Wolf stories. But then also, um, Zelazny wrote my favorite, one of my favorite books ever, Doorways in the Sand. I'm pretty sure he wrote that under the influence of Rex Stout and Nero Wolf. Because if you, if you go back and read, um, any of the Rex Stout books and then you read the, uh, Doorways in the Sand, they the voice is so similar. 
And then this this book that I wrote is in that similar voice, which you know, good or bad, I'm not sure. I don't think I'd ever do that again, but um, but I, it's a heck of a lot of fun. I, as I'm going through it, rewriting it, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, well, I mean, Zelazny, one of his main things was sort of you know hard boiled. Was that hard boiled voice? So. I would. It's not un- unlikely to me that he would be familiar with the, uh, you know, a lot of those hard-boiled noir kind of authors. Sure. What What were some other ones by him that that used that voice? By Zelazny. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, like the Amber books, right? It's like very much just a hard-boiled detective voice applied to an epic fantasy or sword and sorcery story. Um, I see. I, I've read the. I've read all of those a couple of times, but I. It's funny. It never struck me that that was that voice. I guess I just thought I love this voice. Yeah, no, no. Told, go go back and reread the the beginning of Nine Princes in Amber with that in mind. Um, it's it's okay. very it's very Chandler esque. Yeah, cool. Um, but before we run out of time, I want I have a couple other questions I want to ask you. So um, so I noticed reading these stories that there are two stories that mention a place called Two Rivers, and there are three stories that mention it that mention a dimension called Strathteryx. And I was just wondering if there's any, is there a Gerencer verse out there or? Uh... <laughs> no, it's just laziness. Uh, but no, uh, two rivers. Um, it ter- every, every, almost every state has a town called two rivers or three rivers, which if you think about it is just because towns are places where rivers come together. So it, it struck me that if I was going to write about a town that would, that lots of people would relate to, if I called it two rivers, lots of people would relate to it because lots of place, lots of people live in a town where there are two rivers that meet. So I thought, well, this is kind of like an every town, like two rivers would be like in any town USA. Um, and then, and actually we had a, uh, at Colby, I had a radio comedy show with John Zach, who went on to be a, a very successful uh, screenwriter and, and director. Um, but he, he and I, and, and this other guy, Pat Robbins and this, this woman, Sarah Inman, uh, we were all students and we, we had lots of skits set in the town of, of I think it was Three Rivers. But then Strathterex, once I made that up, I just liked the sound of it and I just kept using it. <laughs> so uh, so that's, it's not like, yeah, I just, uh, rather than think up a new place, I was like, oh, I'll just reuse that one. So you don't think of any of your, do, do you think of each of your stories as just being its own thing or do any of them connect in your mind? I've never really thought about that. I'd have to. I'd have to look through them and get back to you. I think they all connect in that it's all kind of takes place in a small town with a person who is similar to me um, with something just crazy, like kind of doorways through to other dimensions and and aliens and things just kind of busting in on that world. So how about, uh, so these are the names of some of the protagonists in these stories. Waldrovsky, Fedrinsky, Galinsky, and Pachinsky. Did you ever notice that you have the... The ski names? Oh, I do that on purpose because um, my last name is Gerencer, which is Hungarian for Smith, which uh, which I tried. I was like, I'm just going to, you know, as my alter ego, I'm just going to choose Hungarian names. But as I started looking at Hungarian surnames, I was like, you can't pronounce any of them. In fact, I can't pronounce my own surname properly. When I went to Hungary to visit, they corrected me incessantly on my surname and I could not get it right. So, um, so rather than do that, which nobody would be able to kind of get a handle on, I thought, well, Poland is next door. Everybody knows what a Polish surname is. It's not, you know, it's not far away from Hungary. Uh, I'm just going to appropriate that. And every time I have to come up with a character, rather than try to think hard about, again, laziness, <laughs> rather than try to think hard about it, I'm just going to put a Polish, like some kind of Polish surname on this person. Yeah, your last name is rough. I, I definitely, uh, 
I've pronounced it many different ways on this podcast alone. So, uh, yeah. But uh, so that so could could you even attempt to replicate how? Because you say it Gerenser, right? I say Gerenser to rhyme with dispenser. How how it how it sounds in Hungarian? It sounds like you either have a case of COVID or you're trying to you're trying to scrape something off the bottom of your shoe. It it sounds like Gerenser or something like that. But I can't okay. I can't I can't do it right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so tell us about um, one of these stories. You had to dig out a three and a quarter, three and a quarter inch floppy disk that had been in a box for thirty years. Yes, I wrote this at Colby in a, in a in a fiction writing class, and I was like, "Oh, I really want to put this that story in the anthology because I love it so much." There were actually two of them. There was one called Pizza Hell, uh, which is about when I was. It was kind of like from right, my experiences working as a waiter at Pizza Hut, uh, but merged with the science fiction universe. And then there was another one called The Third Story, which was a piece of metafiction that I really enjoyed with a character very similar to the uh, the gunslinger from Stephen King's Dark Tower series, which I absolutely love his book, Drawing of the Three. But both of those stories I wanted to include. And I was like, oh, those are those are really cool. I wonder if I should put them in here. And I started looking for them on my hard drives and couldn't find them. And then I started looking through, I, I finally was like, I'm going to have to look through all those notebooks. And I started going through all those notebooks and I could not, I found like notebooks from that year that I was at in that, in that fiction writing class, but I couldn't find either of those stories. And I was getting so, I was starting to like sweat. I was like, I can't believe those stories were so cool. And I just, I just took it for granted that I still had them, but I lost them. And that's so sad to me. And they've never been published and I really like them. And I spent like, you know, days like trying to find these things. And I finally found this three and a half inch floppy disk. And I was like, I wonder if it could be on there. But even if it is, and I looked on Amazon, and it was like, oh, I can buy a floppy disk drive. I'm not too surprised, I guess. So I bought one. And I had, I actually had about eight floppy disks. And I went through each of them and most of them didn't even work. And one of them worked and I opened it up and I didn't find anything. I copied everything off onto a regular hard drive. I was like, I can't believe it's a 30 year old floppy disk and it works. And uh, later that night, I went through and I was going through again. You know, I had done a words search or a file search and it didn't pop up. And then I just started going through manually and scrolling through all the folders. And I found both of them and I was stunned. And they were like intact and they were polished and rewritten in the form that I wanted them in. So I was so excited. So I, I put those <laughs> both in the uh, in the anthology. Well, so in the in the book, you mentioned that this is this is going back to you know some of the the early days of publishing. But you say that uh, an editor once accused you of stealing an idea from a, a famous story. Yes, uh, I won't mention the editor by name, but uh, because I think they're a very good person. But I, but I, um, yeah, I, I wrote this story. My my brother had just had his first. My brother and his wife had just had their first child, and. I was talking to him and I was like, oh, it's so exciting. And he was like, it really is. Like, We just got home from the hospital. And he's like, you know, he already smiled at the hospital, like on his like second day of life. And he's like, the doctor said it was just gas. <laughs> and, you know, now being a parent, I'm like, yeah, I was just, it was obviously just gas. But back then I was like, how dare that doctor? What do you mean <laughs> just gas? How do you know it was just gas? Anything could happen. You know, I was, I was really irritated. It stuck in my head. And then, one, you know, I used to sit down and write every day. And I sat down to write a story and that first line, you know, the doctor said it was just gas popped into my head. But I I added before that just gas line, you know, when baby Johnson 
at 35 seconds old, delivered in clear and lucid Chinese a treatise on on the interconnectedness of all things. Um, the doctor said it's just gas. So I I started with that. I don't know why the interconnected. I just wanted to go beyond just smiling and make it something a little bit more more hyperbolic, I guess. But uh, but then then I, I continued to write this story about these, you know, how this idea that babies when they're born are actually geniuses already which you know there's been a movie called baby geniuses and i don't remember i think that movie came out just after i think i saw the first ad for that just after i had written the story and maybe i had seen the ad before and i didn't realize it and it stuck in my subconscious i don't think so though but um so i wrote this whole story about you know and then when you start to get older you lose all that intelligence that you have because it's too dangerous and you you, people when they Adults, when they get older, are too dangerous, and if they had that kind of information in their head, they would destroy the world. So I wrote this story, and it's short, and it's fun, and I sent it off to this market, and the editor was like, you clearly plagiarized this from this other story, and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I've never even read that other story. And I was like, plagiarized? I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I wrote this wrote this big, long email back, and um, the editor never answered. And was clearly like so bent out of shape by me that she was just not going to talk to me. And so, um, you know, I, I sent it off to Gordon Van Gelder at, at FNSF, Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And I was like, look, I want to tell you first and foremost that this other editor said I played, I stole this. And, and I don't know if she used the word plagiarize or stole the idea or like, I can't exactly remember. But, um, but anyway, I was like, said I stole this and, and, you know, I want you to know I never, I've never, still have not read that story and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back and was like, yeah, don't worry about that. That's ridiculous. That, that idea has, here's the title of an anthology all about stories, all full of stories about babies who are geniuses. And, uh, you know, the only thing, there's no new ideas. You tell me any story idea you want and I will give you an anthology full of it. (laughs) And he said, but the only question is, have you done it in a fresh way? And to my mind, you haven't. And so I got the anthology and I read all the stories and I was like, wow, you know, they're all very similar to mine, but none of them is, is exactly mine. None of them, I didn't plagiarize from any of these, but, um, but he was right. You know, I was like, uh, they, I didn't really introduce anything super new. So, um, I still like the story though. I still like it enough that my, my father really liked, he read it and he was like, Tom. I think this is a really good story. And, and he never said that about any of my stories. So <laughs> that, that's why I put it in the collection. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like such a, such an, I mean, yeah, like such a, um, intimidating, scary thing to happen to you, you know, if you're a new writer for an editor to, you know, to say something like that. And, um, yeah, and it just seems like, I don't know, it just seems like there's so many movies and cartoons and everything about, you know, the babies secretly talk when we're not around or the pets secretly talk when, we, when we're when we not around. It just seems like a whole, a really odd episode to me. Yeah. It, it, back then there were fewer of them, I think. But, um, but yeah, I was sweating bullets when that happened to me for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're, we're pretty much out of time. I have like a ton of other Tom Grenzer stories I wanted to get you to tell, but I think we'll have to save it for another time. But because there's a lot, there's a lot of funny Tom stories. Um, but uh, yeah, do you want to just? Uh, I mean, I, I guess you already talked quite a bit about your uh, your upcoming projects. Um, but is there anything? Uh, just anything? Any other final thoughts you had, or just anything else you want people to know about? 
No, I think we've covered it all. And I just want to say I really appreciate, you know, I've, I've loved uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy for so long. And I really enjoy being on the panels talking about other people's work. So I was just over the moon when you said uh, you wanted to have me on to talk about my collection. So, so I, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's great because, you know, you, you know, cause you and I, um, you know, we talked so much about writing over the years and stuff. And I haven't, you know, I, I've read your bio with the uh, All Our Donkeys Were in Vain thing so many times i'm like man i really would like to read that story i'm kind of curious what what that's all about um so yeah when you put this thing together i was like oh i gotta read this uh and it was fun you know revisiting these stories you know like i said like a taste of damsel or you know intergalactic refrigerator repairmen seldom carry cash that i read 20 years ago uh it was really fun to revisit them um and i I think i laughed out loud more reading this book than i have uh at anything for a long time so uh yeah i'm happy i was happy to to take that to have that opportunity nice Um, thank you yeah um all right cool but so let's uh, wrap things up there so we've been speaking with tom Garenter about his new book intergalactic refrigerator repairmen seldom carry cash so tom thank you so much for joining us thank you very much for having me dave and that was our interview so big thanks again to tom Garenter for joining us on the show and remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Scott Blackmer for sponsoring today's show. Check out his novel Trainer's World from Steam to Stars over at trainersworld.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.